here with Patrick Callahan, who we just had on Life on the Rock, talking about the Newman Institute for Catholic Thought and Culture at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln. That's right. Thank you very right. much. We're excited to hear about what you're doing, and I, I keep coming back to that. You all are offering accredited courses that the university will accept in and great works of literature and Catholic thought. And uh, let, let's start with that. What are some of the courses that you all offer? Yeah, um, so they, they're modeled in, in part and they have this sort of history of genealogy, as it were, from the Pearson program uh, from the University of Kansas in the 1970s. So a lot of these lists, right? Um, John Sr., who taught in the Pearson program in the 1970s, was friends with Mortimer Adler from the Chicago School. I went to the University of Dallas. Uh, a lot of these things are, you know, great book lists. They're, they're not necessarily as important as people s suppose them to be. John Sr. wrote in The Death of Christian Culture that when he was a young undergraduate, he was really concerned about the exact list of great books he had to read. Right. And Mark Van Doren, great professor at Columbia, uh, looks at him and just goes, just looks up on his shelf and just randomly grabs it. He's like, huh, this is Play-Doh. Here, start with this. So there's a busyness that we can have of like just trying to check them all off. But we do. I mean, you have to eventually draw a line and figure out this is the program of what we're doing. So right now uh, we have a catalog of five classes. There are three credit hour courses that um, transfer in for our students. Then they can apply them uh, to some of the goals that they have to graduate from the University of Nebraska. Mm -hmm. um, so we have one called Pilgrim Seekers and Sojourners, right, which is a class which focuses really on um, literature of pilgrimage and experience, reading things like the Odyssey and Chaucer and Don Quixote. Um, we have another class um, called Love and Friendship, um, which is again, looking at, starting with where college students are, right? Because where is their mind right now, yeah. right? Is, is on these sorts of things, defining yeah. these kinds of relationships, right? Eventually they will probably realize like many of us do as you get older that, you know, family, is a is a big part right mm -hmm. but love and friendship right so start with that and then invite them into the deeper meanings of that right because obviously right the greatest love we see on the cross and the the highest friendship is the one that um you know we we find in christ the the gospel that we find in john right the the discourse on friendship mm -hmm. i think that's something that's missing often in catholic discourse today about the way that we train people uh, i think that there's a wonderful book called The Friendship of Christ by Robert Hugh Benson, mm. where he talks about this as sort of the last of the sort of things that Christ is training us for. One of the things I find sort of lacking in a lot of our Catholic programming is we have a heavy emphasis on discipleship and mission and apostolate, but we're kind of missing that last step that Christ is calling us to. And you find in, in the Catholic tradition of, of deep friendship and what that means to be friends with God. Right. Because it's... it's we call it friendship, but it's a completely different yeah. concept of friendship, and it's so hard to grasp. But it, you find it again in the Gospels, right? It's what it's what Jesus is asking us to come so to. I no longer call you servants, or yeah, no, I no longer or... call you servants. I call you friends. Right? And Aquinas goes on this. It's a really strange thing yeah. for God to call you friend. Yeah, right. It makes sense. God will call you a disciple. Disciples, the Latin word for a discipline, a rule, right? You're following a structure. We're, we're obeying orders, right? Uh, and that's that's right. We need to be reordered. Because of original sin, we need to rightly order ourselves. 
That mi missionary response, fantastic. Right. But when we are in the beatific vision, mm -hmm. right, um, those things are foundational, but that friendship in, in Christ, right. that's, that's eternity. Well, yeah, I remember Pope Benedict talking about it. I forgot if it was in his encyclical, God is Lover, but he, somewhere he was speaking eloquently about it. And, he, and I remember it kind of struck me because I, I didn't think about the terminology as much friends. And at first it kind of sounds superficial, like, okay, I got friends. But yeah, it I, sounds really funny. Like, yeah. oh, Jesus is my friend, right? <laughs> But yeah, we're supposed to have, the Protestants are telling us, you know, relationship with Christ. And it is about union. That's a love of friendship that affects and produces this union with Christ. Like John of the Cross talks about union. And yeah, and you, there can only ever be friendship between equals. And so what has to happen to us yeah. in order for God to be able to right. call us friend? Right. And that, you know, I guess it too, it struck me too, when you start, trying to be friends with Christ, try to have a conversation with him, have a real prayer life, you know, you realize, hey, this this is really deep. You know, it's no longer, you know, just not slaves in a workhouse and just, okay, I'm doing my evangelization or whatever, hammering out my prayers or something. But it's like, he's calling me to have a real relationship, conversation, no mutual knowledge and sharing, you know. Yeah. And and uh, again, mutual knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. Which is, of course, what happens when we have friends. And of course, our friend is, you know, God who is spirit and we have to know him as he is. Right. So, you know, we who are this weird amalgam of body and spirit yeah. have to start paying attention to the other side of ourselves and trying to come to know him. Right, right. So that's one of your classes. Yeah, the, Love and Friendship, friendship. Uh, Pilgrim Seekers, Sojourners. Yeah. We have uh, another class on the mystery of evil. Uh, again, all, all these classes, uh, so we have five of them. They're all various great books classes. And, you know, it goes through the whole catalog, right? You, you have, you know, basically from the beginning of the Greek tradition with Homer mm. uh, and the Odyssey and the Iliad and different classes, all the way up to, you know, 19th and 20th century and even some 21st century works that I think are all speaking to a great tradition. Right, something that's an ongoing conversation that we're having. What would so, be a 21st century work? Can you think of it off the top? Oh, gosh. Uh, you're putting me on the spot here, trying to think of something. I think like that, Story of a Soul. Uh, so I, I like, um, yeah, oh, sorry, 21st century work, though. Yeah. Uh, so I, I really like some modern authors oh. that have been doing some good things, like uh, Mark Halperin. Uh, oh. So he's late 20th, early 21st century. Oh, so yeah. he's got a great collection of stories called The Pacific. Um, okay. And there's there's other ones who I think, um, you know, again, there's good books and great books, as mm -hmm. John Senior used to talk about. And uh, people get really busy about like this exact list of like the hundred greatest books mm -hmm. and I have to read them. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, and th that's not really the way to go about it at all. And there's all these good books that are preparatory for you to actually appreciate the greatness of the great books. Yeah. So uh, this is part of the work of the Institute, too, as I'm coming in as director is. Uh, what we're going to start doing is some um, teacher training um, for teachers in our diocese and other dioceses mm -hmm. where we'll be inviting them in to teach them about, you know, the, the sort of uh, educational experience that, that we're offering at the Newman Institute, but also what's foundational to that, right? So yeah. the, the good book list of, you know, with children, like offering them something that fits the, the needs they have today um, in terms of training, but also, 
you know, gives them this imaginative experience that um, supplies them, that is a substitute, right, for, for life's hard knocks. The, mm -hmm. the poet A.E. Hausman talked about this in a great poem called Terence, This is Stupid Stuff, mm -hmm. uh, where he talks about how poetry and literature are a way of creating uh, enough of uh, an immunity to the poisons of the world so that when you 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 finally get a dose of it right uh -huh. it's not going to knock you off completely off guard right or what's what uh people yeah. love to popularly talk about with gk chesterton right yeah. the the point is uh you know with, with children's fairy tales and stories about dragons um it's it's not that dragons exist we know that dra dragons exist evils exist it's that dragons can be beaten mm. and that's something that we have to teach our children yeah so or just like all the stories in the Bible of war and sex and everything that, that how messed up things can get, you know, it's like, okay, these are things of life. They happen in life. And, yeah. Some, yeah. some real old Testament mess, right. <laughs> uh, going through like with, you know, some of the things that the later Kings got up to yeah. Uh, it. Yeah. And, and looking at someone like David or Solomon, I mean, David who wrote such beautiful poetry but so conflicted, so many mistakes. Yeah. And how do, we, um, how do we integrate that life of the person again? Um, right. And the story can strike the heart in a way, just that idea of a story. You know, people love like in preachers when they tell a story and it, it is effective at communicating and reaching the heart, I think. Yeah, and I think that's another one of our classes is mm -hmm. the storyteller. And mm -hmm. it is sort of what we're trying to communicate is Again, basic foundations in, in relationships, understanding, you know, what heroism is, understanding how we tell each other stories, and then understanding that we're all on an ultimate path to God, right? Mm -hmm. Again, the sequence of our great books is not designed in sort of, a, um, we don't treat the, the tradition like a cadaver, right? Where you're just okay, now we're going to do the Greeks, now we're going to do the Romans, and then the medieval, and then we're going to do the Renaissance. And so th what that does is it, it treats it as disparate parts. Mm. And all of our courses are always designed to take, okay, uh, it's more like an opera, right, mm. where there's leitmotifs that run through right. all the tradition. And right. so we'll start with early literature, and we'll build up, and we'll... I'm teaching a class this uh, fall where we're gonna we're gonna end up with some Jane Austen, right? So how do you get from Homer to Jane Austen, and see that they're talking about the same sort of human experience, wrestling right. with the same sort of problems? Right. Yeah, I had our sisters were telling me, commanding me to watch one of the Jane Austen movies. They, that it was important that you understand this. <laughs> and I was it, like, <laughs> it is, and I think there's a, a lot of exciting literature. Uh, I, I have. Uh, a few friends who've been working, Michelle Vakris and Cecil Bohannon, yeah. who talk about Scottish Enlightenment philosophy and its influence on Jane Austen. Yeah. And so you can actually look at the terminology that she uses for her characters and their motivation in the text. Mm -hmm. And she's actually echoing uh, philosophical thought from, from Hume and Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiment. Really? So sense and sensibility. I never would have guessed. <laughs> but once once you once you realize it, you know they're they're a generation before uh, Jane Austen. Mm -hmm. Her father was a preacher. 
He was exposed to this Scottish Enlightenment philosophy. And then uh, I think they, they published a book and other people have been publishing articles on this. I mean, it's irrefutable that, that Austin was deeply steeped in this philosophical tradition. But today, how many people in the general public, right? Mm. General public read David Hume's essays. Right. Very few. Right. However, how many people have read or have experienced the stories of Jane Austen? Right. An enormous amount. You look at something like Sense and Sensibility, mm. and right there, it's, a, it's an allegory or a tale of what Hume was trying to articulate between the delicacy of passion and the delicacy of taste, right? Where one of the sisters, you know, is, is given over to, to music and emotivism, and the other one is, she's the visual arts. She looks and she observes. So again, even something like that, as simple as, why is one sister um, you know, play the piano and why does one draw, mm. right? It actually is a philosophical understanding to all of it. Yeah, I would ask you, you know, our culture today, you know, we're media drenched. We're all about movies and stuff. More people are ingesting movies. Do you see like some great classic themes that have can speak to us in valid ways and deep ways in the movies? I'll, I'll put a pin on that. <laughs> um, the The answer is yes, and I'll come back to it. Uh -huh. But I want to also talk about uh, having taught college students now since 2008. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've experienced this. It's not gone unobserved by me. I think one of the things that we have to understand is that reading is also a habit, mm. right? And I also understand that not many people have cultivated that habit. Right. But as someone who works in, in early Greek literature, what I would also say is that um, we have this weird fascination with literacy in the book. Mm -hmm. And what we forget is the ultimate end of it, which is communication between persons. Right. Now, in a book, it, it's happening over centuries. Um, but there seems to be this weird shame that people have over, like, listening to audiobooks of, like, and, like, uh, there's a great pleasure in that, right? I, mm -hmm. I can never read a book with character voices as well as some of these great actors who do mm -hmm. this. And it's all free that you can get from public yeah. libraries or things like that. I mean, some of the great delight I have with my children or just when I'm driving, I mean, how do I consume all the literature that I try to read? I don't always have time to read uninterrupted. So, uh, sorry. Yeah, I, right. And that sort of is a bridge, I think, between what you're talking about, mm -hmm. this phenomenon of like mm -hmm. the entertainment right. uh, and the reading culture and being exposed to these things. Yeah. And for some reason, people have like a sense of... A, a, or at least in, in my encounters, I've always had this sort of strange sense of shame of like, right. have you read, you know, Dickens, uh, yeah. you know, Great Expectations? Well, mm. I listened to the audiobook, and I'm like, no, you, you've read it. Yeah. You, yeah. You, you know, that's the mm -hmm. experience. In fact, sometimes, you know, the same way, like, you would not say that the experience of sitting down and reading Shakespeare was the same as going and actually watching a play. Right. right? And, and the things that you notice, yeah. right? Because then there are other people getting into it and yeah. they're reading a line differently than you'd ever read a line. Right. And, uh, and then it becomes again, a living tradition. Uh -huh. uh, so sorry, I wanted to, to point that out as something that, yeah. but yeah, in, in movies, I think we, we also, also don't understand the medium um, and what it, it is. Right? Mm -hmm. It's largely a visual medium. Mm -hmm. um, and so its ability to tell story is a visually dominated, dominated story. Right. So, 
you know, I, I think there's some great pieces out there. Um, ones that, you know, even have very few words like uh, Dunkirk, which is mm. a, a film that came out recently. Right. Well, not that as recently right. as I, I seem to remember, yeah. but that's COVID yeah. right. Uh, right. making me think that things are more recent <laughs> than they are. But I mean, the story with very little dialogue, mm -hmm. right? Or um, there's another one uh, set in, in World War I, uh, I believe it was uh, 1917. Yeah. Uh, where it just follows one man going through the trenches. Right, right. Uh, beautiful film, right? Yeah. Visually beautiful. Um, I don't think it ever can communicate the same kind of thing. And this is this is a, a debate that's that's gone on in in sort of philosophy and about poetry and the arts for for centuries. Is like, what can the visual arts do, and and what can can poetry do, and what can music do? Mm. Um, and what are the aesthetic possibilities and problems of them? And that goes back to the thing that, that Jane Austen does, right? Where mm -hmm. she has one one character who is the visual artist and the other one who uh, works in music. Right. And I think we, we often uh, talk about the scripts and the plot of these things. I think those are, are less important from sort of a classical understanding of Aristotelian playwrights than, than we ever imagined, right? Mm -hmm. We've created a, a whole different art. And I think the experience is kind of like the invention of opera, where uh, Gluck and uh, Galileo's father actually was involved in this too. Mm -hmm. uh, these Italians are coming together and in the um, late Renaissance, and they're trying to recover the music and the style of Greek tragedy. Mm -hmm. And uh, we now know that what they invented, which is what we today call opera, right, was nothing really like the the musical uh, dynamic mm -hmm. in ancient Greek op uh, in ancient Greek tragedy. Mm -hmm. But they created something beautiful and new, right. and that's fantastic. They were inspired by something old, and they missed the mark, and they they landed on something beautiful. Right. And I think modern film is the same way. They keep look, looking over the shoulder of other art forms that have inspired modern movies. Right. Then you're kind of missing what movies are able to do. And then we're not speaking of them because we're, we're using a terminology which is fitted for one art form and, and using it for another. Yeah. It'd be as if I was a, a, an airplane pilot or a yeah. designer, right? right? And I'm using a textbook for boats. Right, right. And, and it's true. Like there is like, you know, it's true that Airplanes do take some terminology from, you know, uh, shipcraft. Uh -huh. However, there's some unique things that you need to talk about with airplanes <laughs> that you never have to talk about with the ship. Right, right, right. Yeah, just the idea of like, yeah, drama, story, like just good versus evil. I mean, it's like our relativism kind of strips it out of our movies now and even like this obsession with showing deeply flawed heroes that are, you know. Well, everything is a dark, gritty reboot yeah. until we have the, the dark, gritty reboot of the dark, gritty reboot. <laughs> uh, until eventually we, we end up with the movie, which is just called The Gratuitator, which is just, you know, sex and violence, which yeah. is kind of where we're at. Yeah. But I, I don't know. It, it's, um, sorry, I lost the train of thought there. Oh, just, you know, with the movies and that yeah just i i, I but I, I think there's a, a i'll speak to mm -hmm. that's what i want to speak to i think there's a, a a danger though in um 
getting fixated on on story uh-huh. um, because again as an, as an academic what I look at that is uh, you know this is this is talking about critical theory and narrative right and so trying to understand the world and all truth as story so I think the the Christian and the Catholic responses is a both and mm. right a lot of it is uh, you know there is system and there's story and I think there's a marvelous dance between the two of them. What I've seen in a lot of um, ministry is that people have sort of recovered this idea of story, and then they become, you know, sort of they they, they oppose it as a as a way of explaining the faith, as opposed to say like manualism in Catholic theology, right, where everything fits into, you know, uh, subsection A, one, mm-hmm. two, three, four, five. B, C, D, right. all that, right? right. Where uh, we systematize truth. Yeah. Uh, and it, I think it's a, it's a little bit of both. And I think that uh, an over-obsession with story, uh, what that misses is the fact that there's a unified whole to the, all of it, mm. which again is, is part of God's wisdom and the uh-huh. wisdom that he's inviting us to, which again is um, when you, you focus on story and it's your story, right? then um, it becomes your truth. And then that can be dangerous because it leads into a sort of relativism. But then understanding that there's a system and a whole and then seeing a story to the whole, Hmm. right? So the two of them become sort of one. Yeah, so the weakness of modern storytelling is, yeah, seeing that whole, right? The the true values behind the whole. Because I marvel at, too. I grew up in the 70s, 80s, and the 70s. When I hit the 80s, I was in high school in the 80s, and it's like, um, you know, the 70s were horrible. Everything about the 70s is bad. Yeah, we're much better now. <laughs> but it was. Uh, well, we keep telling ourselves that. <laughs> but one thing I got to say, though, is like, if you look at like television and television, is, you know, there's, there's like fast plots now, there's action. There's real creative storylines and there's plot. I guess plot, that word, that, you know, they could yeah, become... Yeah, there were, there were, I, I, be, I would agree with you. Yeah, I mean, they become... Since the last 20 years, we really have, like, we, we, when we started cutting out the laugh track, Yeah. Uh, right. it actually made, you got rid of that crutch. Right. There right. have been some, some good stories that have come out there. Yeah, and it can be, like, dazzling, like like plot twists and turns and the unexpected and the clever dialogue. And it looks like a million bucks, you know, every scene and everything. But yeah, it's like sometimes though, there's like kind of this emptiness where it's not, isn't there's something like an emptiness of the values behind it that doesn't really grab the heart. You know, it's like in the end, it's not memorable. I'm kind of, cause now I like, I watch a movie and it's like, I can't tell you what that movie was about. Like, am I getting old or is it just, it was like just this action movie that just went so much action. I'm thinking of like maybe even like the Star Trek reboots, which a couple of them I thought were just like fantastic. They were a blast to watch. I couldn't tell you anything about them later. Yeah. You know? It's like there's nothing that, that spoke to the heart that maybe hit upon a real heart theme or something that yeah. I think like classic works of art do you know they've stood the test of time and but again that it goes back to the, the recovery of a lost tradition right mm-hmm. uh you look at shakespeare's plays so many of them are just him cribbing notes uh-huh. 
off of you know other great works right the roman plays looking at plutarch you know uh, the spanish tragedy or any of these other things romeo and juliet itself inspired right. by another work um so it, it is you know one often doesn't think of shakespeare as a dark gritty reboot right. it's not that dark and gritty but it is sort of a reboot, but he puts a, a new new way, a new fashion on it. Even Homer himself. I mean, Homer constantly has to go back in the Iliad to, to clean up moments where people, they know this tale. It's been told from so many different perspectives, from so many different wandering bards, mm -hmm. that when Homer tries to synthesize it into his story, he has to have a number of moments where they're like, people are waiting for a reference to this character or that other episode. And it's not part of his central story. Yeah. And he has to kind of throw in Easter eggs. Mm. So in like book three of the Iliad, Helena Troy is looking out over the, the assembled troops. And she's looking for her brothers, Castor and Pollux. Right? Mm. And everyone in, in the audience in Homer's day would have known the story of Castor and Pollux mm. and everything else. And so Homer himself is still stuck with this problem of people mm. asking for that. But I think the difference is that he acknowledges that past and works with it and creates something new. Mm. I think the, the problem today with some of our storytelling, uh, uh, what you're getting to the heart of is the fact that, um, it, you know, in, in, in our aversion to, to avoid being derivative, mm -hmm. we become hyper derivative mm. to the point where we've stripped out all granularity of characters and, and plot, um, I have a friend who talks about with the Star Wars movies, right? Mm -hmm. Where, um, you know, the, the original trilogy, you have like actual family drama, which is heavily reliant. And, and we don't have to get into Joseph Campbell because I don't particularly adhere to that whole theory. But this whole idea of like going to, to Oedipus and family relations and like, I am your father, right? Mm -hmm. These sort of revelations. Um, you look at the new ones and it's just like, hey, you're this random character. Let's go do this random thing and we're going to blow up this thing and it's going to cost a lot of money. And it doesn't really amount to much, yeah. right? Because next thing you know, we're going to just spike the ball on everything when we show the next film. And so what it ends up becoming is sort of uh, the the madness of, um, you know, the, the pre-Christian conception of the world is an infinite loop, right? Mm. No beginning, no end. Right. We're just coming in at random points. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's is the important distinction between Aquinas and, say, Aristotle, right? Is that Aquinas yeah. is like there, there is a beginning right. and there is an end. There is a, a talus to the whole and there are principles behind it. And understanding the principles and understanding the end is going to lead us to wisdom. And so telling stories that, that situate people in yeah. that larger story, yeah. that that's going to invite them to wisdom, going to invite them to wonder, to, to look at their own experience. But I think there's, again, there's always a danger, though, when we focus on, tell me your story, right? Well, then we're, we're doing the, the thing which is, which is dangerous because your story is never just about you, mm -hmm. right? We're kind of a nexus of relationships that, that build the person, right? You're, you're a father, you're a brother, you're a, uh, you're a son, you're a mm -hmm. sibling. Uh, a friend, a, a priest, right? all these things are, are part of who you are and none of them can ever really be mm. untangled. To remove any of them, to sort of isolate it, right? To say, yeah. this is this is who this person is just as a brother, right? Then yeah. you lose you lose the person. Yeah. You yeah. you've you've torn apart the watch to figure out how it works. 
and it no longer is a watch. It's just yeah. a bunch of pieces of metal. Right, right. I, yeah, I remember my father would read to us a lot growing up, and he he had like a, a child's version of the Iliad and the Odyssey. And I, I can remember as a kid just riveted by like some of these characters, you know, like Achilles and uh, and Hector and um, and his virtue and war and battle and some not wanting to fight and, you know, all this kind of tension and gods being involved and dragging people by the helmet and all this yeah. stuff. But I remember I just like as a kid, you know, it just, it's kind of, I think back on it, it's kind of amazing how, you know, that such an ancient story it would just grab a young person's mind you know it does and it, in a way that i don't think um to be polemical i don't think some of our superhero narratives really right. really get to that right there, there's yeah. something missing there um anyway yeah yeah maybe you you're a classicist you've studied classical works and um i remember i, I went on a footprints of saint paul's pilgrimage a few years ago and uh we went to Athens. We went to the Areopagus, and uh, and we went up to the Parthenon, and and I remember you know, coming around the corner and seeing it, and just saying, I remember even though it's like blown to smithereens, yeah. <laughs> and there's pieces missing in the British Museum and other parts. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, but there was still something special about it. And then later that night, went down to that this fantastic modern museum the modern design that just it's just gorgeous you know <laughs> just the the drama of the whole thing the acropolis and that and i was watching this film on the parthenon and they they talked about it's alive you know that it, it's like it springs to life and they talked about all the all the things they did in building it designing it the curves of everything and yeah and I remember I said yeah cuz i mean on the trip we saw all kinds of like parthenon type temples but none of them like popped like that one that seemed alive. And I, it just got me thinking about, you know, this is like 500 BC. The Renaissance is like rebirthing this stuff 2000 years later, right? That, yeah. That, yeah, approximately, yeah. Yeah, and it's like these Greeks were doing realistic statuary and stuff and you know, a long time before these Italians, you know, I mean, like the, Michelangelo, yeah. you know, and, and uh, I was like, what is it about the Greek culture that was so fertile? There's a, um, I'm actually have an article that I'm finishing writing this, uh, this month on uh, the French uh, philosopher Simone Weil. Uh, she has a, a short book called the Iliad or the Poem of Force. And she talks about this and its understanding and relationship to Christianity. Um, as sort of, from the Catholic perspective, the, the lost heritage that leads to the New Testament. There are things that, um, you know, Jesus as a Galilean, right, coming, interacting with all these, you know, apostles who have both Hebrew and Greek names, mm -hmm. that this larger heritage of Hellenism is part of this. You look at moments of mercy um, in the Iliad or something like that as something that, or, or what she talks about is the ability to empathize with your enemy, mm. right? The, the meeting at the end of the Iliad of Prime and Achilles in the tent, right? And, and mourning over the dead, um, not 
quite, I, I don't necessarily agree that it's exactly a matchup with Christian mm -hmm. empathy. I think it's these intimations that they're, they're, they're reaching out for. And it's a people who are ripe for it. I think, right. again, and it's not, it's not just myself privately thinking this, the church has spoken again and again. I mean, we believe in an incarnational God who came into history. And, you know, while the Hebrew people are, are unique people, they're God's chosen people. Um, he also chose a time and a place in order for that message to spread. And the Greeks are a big part of that. Um, and I'm not advocating some sort of like special Greek miracle on, on, on the, the level of Exodus or something like that. But I think it's worth looking at because it's it's part of understanding Paul or understanding any of this is that um, the beauty of, of what they, they had prepared them for the the paradoxical beauty of the cross mm. right because we talk about this with, with christianity is that mm. you know again the you think of the the idealized male figure in, in ancient greek sculpture right and compare that with the corpus on on any crucifix or or our franciscan mm. san damiano right mm. to to look at that that mm. beautiful cross that saint francis beheld right to if you show that to an ancient greek if you had a time machine right they, they would think it is just atrocious mm -hmm. right but there's something there that prepared the mind to to see a beauty which is immutable right mm -hmm. and so there's this paradox of uh what is physically you know what isaiah the prophet isaiah talks about right is just mm -hmm. horrible to behold mm -hmm. right but here is true beauty here is true love mm -hmm. um sorry if that if that went off too far mm -hmm. from where we started but I think that's that's part of what um, our tradition is as Catholics. I, I think we we kind of ignore it uh, to our detriment. This this heritage. No, not all Catholics, right? I mean, there there are wonderful traditions. Again, the, the church has, has gone out to to different parts of the world, and again, it's um, part of the work that we talk about in the Second Vatican uh, Council documents of enculturation, right? Of looking to see, okay, well, this is this is what's true to Christian culture. And these are supplemental accretions, which are mm. helpful in particular cultures and times and places. Mm. And, and what's eternal? Uh, obviously, the mass is eternal, right? Baptism, mm. right? But the forms they take. But if these are things that are born out of Christian culture, right? Michelangelo or something like that, Raphael, mm. Um, and they're inspired by the Greek heritage, and they're inspired by Catholicism. Then you know they've been baptized, and you know why would we throw that out? Right. I mean, this is the right. sort of silliness of, you know, like, hey, uh, I have these plans for, um, you know, this uh, this jet plane. Uh, I heard you, you know, want to design a jet plane yourself, and you're like, no, I'm good. I don't need anything <laughs> like really these have been designed you know by you know top tier uh, core of engineers yeah. they, it's been certified by all these different people yeah, and they yeah. say it's good don't you want to use this design yeah. no i i need it to be completely mine and wholly authentic to me myself as my individual person right. which again right. is this weird um yeah. but that goes sorry to get too academic but that goes back to sort of a rousseauian enlightenment version of uh, authenticity yeah. and the authentic self as something yeah. that you construct on your own right. as opposed to understanding that like who you are is, is part of a larger human community this is how christ is able to redeem us yeah 
right? as the whole human race. Yeah, and like, you know, religion takes such a beating that <laughs> I'm spiritual, not religious, but it's like, you can see in history how it's, it has united people like into, I think, I mean, if you look at the Parthenon, right, it's all about a temple. Yeah. And there's yeah, all these or, religious or figures in it. Going, going back even earlier to that, to yeah. Akkadian or Sumerian cultures, or even yeah. there, religion is this unifying thing. Right. You try to explain for the past 6,000 years of human history, someone saying that they're spiritual but not religious. <laughs> <laughs> That's, they just look at you like, what are you talking about? Yeah, it yeah I no mean, sense. Yeah, it's like, I, I remember I was in a, a little pilgrimage to Paris and was given a uh, and the tour guide was talking and he was obviously like a fallen away catholic but he loved notre dame and he and he had this great love and appreciation for it i remember him saying something like over 200 years you know this was built it's on the order of that or something but he we don't have the patience for that these days though yeah <laughs> but if you have like a common motivation yeah. you do you know you, you do. can keep it's not just one individual company building a skyscraper it's like a nation over centuries throwing their best artisans at this yeah and you got something that's going to last you know it, it's not it's not the same scale but when i was at the university of kansas i used to take students in, in every august to out to colorado and as we we're driving on i-70 in the middle of nowhere in kansas we would stop at victoria kansas right the cathedral of the plains yeah. and uh if people should look it up it, it's 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 quite beautiful it's this gorgeous limestone but these the small community in the middle of nowhere kansas every person who was part of that parish right instead of you know father asking for a check and hiring a contractor every single person in that community in the beginning of the 20th century went on their own and quarried the stone and brought it to the church wow. and it's their church wow right and so yeah i mean it, it, they built it in a matter of decades not a matter mm -hmm. of centuries mm -hmm. and it's it's not notre dame mm -hmm. but it is a living church in a way that that pope benedict the 16th would talk about the spirit of the liturgy where these are real stones they communicate the the solidity of god and the right. the realness of it yeah. um that in a way that you know sort of prefab aluminum siding and drywall, <laughs> drywall. right and <laughs> alpha church supply <laughs> and, you know and look uh, and it's not to say you know, the mass is the mass is the mass right yeah but again, we're, we're embodied souls and the, the architecture and, and all of this communicates something to the spirit, right? We're, yeah. we're, not, we're not just pure materialists and we're not angels, right? right. We're, we're in this funny position where it does matter sometimes. The, the matter matters in order to communicate the spiritual, especially right. as, as a father of young children. And you completely see the difference in the reaction of when we're traveling, we take our kids to mass mm -hmm. and you go to somewhere where there's an appreciation for that sort of tr architectural mm -hmm. tradition that you talked about mm -hmm. from the Greeks mm -hmm. to the Renaissance to mm -hmm. today, right? Where my kids will go in there and I don't have to worry about them disrupting mass and, mm -hmm. you know, disruption is fine. They're children, yeah. right? It happens. But there are some churches where I go in there and it's beautiful because it's so stunningly gorgeous that my kids are just quiet and they right. just are attentive to it and there's other churches when we travel where just be honest with you that like it's very difficult because it's hard to, for them to tell the difference between this building and like a school or yeah. a hall or anything else mm -hmm. there's again the sense of the sacred 
it's not just about the the bishop coming and consecrating the space, mm-hmm. right? That that affects it, but I mean, that the material itself communicates something. Yeah, and it struck me recently. See, I was in a traveling. I was at a parish. It was like a modern church. It wasn't particularly beautiful, but it it was like I had a huge number of people there, and I offered the mass, and it was it, it just. I don't know, it kind of it just roused me, got my attention to say, wow, all these people are coming. It was like a regular Sunday Mass, and it was like, they're coming to Mass. We are all together. We're all, yeah. like, we break away from our, our media, our privatized media use, and we're all coming together. Yeah. And we believe the same thing. We're worshiping, and uh, so. It, it, again, it acknowledges that we're embodied souls, right? And you have to start with that, right? Again, start with that foundation of building the body, keeping... Mm-hmm getting the base needs met, right? Mm. Which then creates a space for the spirit to be lifted up. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's just, we, at the University of Nebraska, Lincoln, uh, Father Robert Matias really built this beautiful Newman Center for us. And, and the church has uh, one of the largest stained glass window installations mm. uh, in the last, I think, dozen years or something really? like that. It's enormous. And the beauty of it is that architecture students from our university, no wow. interest in Catholicism, are going to come and and they do and there's stories of them coming and studying it and mm-hmm. coming here and and then there's conversion stories mm-hmm. we have a beautiful pipe organ mm-hmm. right and our music students come and then they practice here and then they're in the catholic space we've won them over and it's amazing you know places i've gone to like that where the beauty that draws them in is is that initial um, hook but the faith comes about Right, the sacraments, right. sacraments are being uh, practiced here, and and grace is communicated, and and people convert. I mean, there are just so many beautiful stories like that um, yeah. from my time, and yeah, and and the the great books can do that too, and you can carry them with you. I think sorry to to try to trick it right. back home right. to the yeah. classes we yeah. teach. One of the core elements in my classes that's different than most great books is that we memorize a, a lot of poetry. We begin every class with memorization of poetry. And what that does is it, it, it strengthens your heart for moments of, of just giving you words when nothing else comes to you. So, for example, like you, it's a beautiful day and you don't know what to say. It, it's um, a moment where I'll stop and I'll recite. Gerard Manley Hopkins, you know, glory be to God for dappled things, for skies of a couple of colors, a brinded cow, and just go on and recite the whole poem. And that's it. That's all I have to say, right? Because right. I don't have the words to communicate how beautiful right. the, the top of this mountain is. I don't have right. the words to communicate how beautiful this spring day is. But there are other people who have, and I'm going to humble myself to recite their words, which in turn prepares you for the Mass. There's a beautiful story I'll tell from uh, from one of my classes where... Uh, a student was, um, we also memorized um, some, some of the Psalms as well. And uh, a student had, a, his grandfather was passing away and um, his favorite Psalm was the 23rd Psalm. And uh, they couldn't find a Bible in the, the hospital room or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the student told me that like <laughs> he had memorized it in class. Yeah. And so the, you know, he, he still, an adolescent, so he's letting the, the grown-ups do their thing, and they're they're looking everywhere for a Bible, and they can't find one. 
And then he just starts saying, the Lord mm. is my shepherd, I shall not want. And he just goes on and recites the whole of the 23rd Psalm. And it's this beautiful gift that he can give to his grandfather on his last day. And uh, that much more beautiful when it's recited. When it's recited, right? Because someone. you've taken it into your heart. Yeah. I, as, a, as a professor, it was one of the big shifts in my teaching was to, to say, we need to stop going from just essays all the time, just essays that sometimes there's a value in memorizing a sonnet of Shakespeare and not writing five pages on Shakespeare's sonnet, mm. um, that the student learns the sonnet in a way that's completely different than if I just give them a, a prompt because that's all they've been doing. And to break them out of that mold of just like, all right, here's another essay. <laughs> I'm going to save it to the last minute. I'm yeah. going to drink my Red Bull. I'm going to hand it in. <laughs> uh, professor's going to grade it. Professor's going to give it back to me. I'm going to throw it in the trash without ever looking at the marks. Right Now, hopefully my students don't do that. But let's be honest, a lot of classes are like that. And mm. a lot of people use just the essay as a, as a crutch in our teaching. Right. It's not to say I don't assign essays, but right. the, the amount of poetry that we do is something that I think is um, it's just a different way of actually learning this material and entering into it. And it's a way of interpreting it too, because again, like a, any actor will tell you, you know, when the, the, the sort of stereotype of like the, 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 the screenwriter getting in an argument about the actor, about the way they're reading the lines, yeah. it's about a matter of interpretation. Right. And so when you memorize a poem, you're entering into that too. Now, of course, uh, as W.H. Auden said in his poem on William Butler Yeats, right? The words of a dead man are modified in the guts of the living, right? So the dead man can't tell you, you're reading my words incorrectly. Mm. But at the same time, it, it's an honest attempt to try to understand the mind of another human person that bridge the gap between oneself and another that seems to be the unbridgeable problem. We look at today's world and the confusion that we have of people not understanding each other mm -hmm. because they don't they don't try to do that first step to wisdom that St. Thomas Aquinas talks about where he says to listen willingly. Mm. To listen willingly is the first step towards wisdom. Mm. And <clears throat> we, we hear people, but we're, we're already reciting whatever speech and response we have behind us. When you memorize a poem, there's no speech or response that you can kind of come up with. Mm -hmm. You're just entering into the words of another person and you're trying to understand them as best as you can and it changes you and you're not the same right well that's a good segue to where can they find out more website information on what you all are doing yeah uh so we're the newman um we'd love to have people um participate and support our mission in various ways uh, as i'm coming in here this is the first two weeks of me being director uh, and we're starting to open things up again post-COVID. Mm -hmm. So if people want to continue to support what we do in terms of our classes, we obviously mm -hmm. have a donate page, which helps us add more faculty and add more course times and reach more students. But also, you know, we are doing teacher training. Um, mm -hmm. So people, if you're in K through 12 education and you're a Catholic and you're interested in that, come to our website in the next couple months and you're going to see that we're going to start offering that in the summer of 2022. Mm -hmm. uh, so people can sign up for that and that'll be free. Uh, and then we're going to start offering some more pilgrimage experiences as well. Uh, so all TBD, but 
people can pay attention to that. Mm. My wife and I uh, host a, an Instagram blog on, on books called The Well-Read Catholic, and there's mm. a Well-Read Catholic podcast as well. Mm. Uh, and so those are things that if you're, it was one of the things I, I created. Uh, I got tired of students asking me for book recommendations all the time. I have ready lists of book recommendations, yeah. but I realized that there's just a, um, a easy way to tell people what to read or, or recommendations for reading is for them just follow along yeah. and, and see what I'm reading. And some of your seminars you hope to post Yes, uh, seminars and lectures in the future. Yeah. So past seminars and lectures, uh, I don't believe we have an archive of them. Yeah. Uh, but future seminars and lectures will be going out in podcast and on YouTube. Um, so, and they can always find that at newmaninstitute.com. Yeah. Podcasts are great. We spend so much time in the car. It's a great way to get information and stuff. So yeah. Thank you so much. Patrick. No, thank you, Father. Bye.